For the past year, the Emergency Committee and WHO have been analyzing the data carefully and considering when the time would be right to lower the level of alarm. Yesterday, the Emergency Committee met for the 15th time and recommended to me that I declare an end to the public health emergency of international concern. I have accepted that advice. It's therefore with great hope that I declare COVID-19 over as a global health emergency. That was Dr. Tedros, head of the World Health Organization, declaring in May this year that COVID-19 was no longer a public health emergency of international concern. After three years of disruption, most listening to that would have breathed a sigh of relief. But what Dr. Tedros said next still gave some cause for concern. That does not mean COVID-19 is over as a global health threat. Last week, COVID-19 claimed life every three minutes. And that's just the deaths we know about. As we speak, thousands of people around the world are fighting for their lives in intensive care units. And millions more continue to live with the debilitating effects of post-COVID-19 condition. This virus is here to stay. It's still killing, and it's still changing. The risk remains of, a new, of new variants emerging that cause new surges in cases and deaths. The worst thing any country could do now is to use this news as a reason to let down its guard, to dismantle the systems it has built or to send the message to its people that COVID-19 is nothing to worry about. So, on the one hand, we have a message from the WHO that the pandemic is over. On the other, the message is that governments shouldn't let their guard down, that they shouldn't dismantle systems they've built to fight COVID-19, and that they shouldn't tell their citizens that COVID-19 is nothing to worry about. Now, from my perspective here in the UK, the government has long ago stopped following those pieces of advice. The systems we had to combat COVID, such as test and trace, were dismantled long ago. Our government never mentions COVID-19 as a public health risk. And unless you are someone with clinical vulnerabilities to COVID, the NHS doesn't advise testing for the virus, even if you have symptoms. So what to make of it all? Should we worry more or less about COVID-19 than we currently are? What are the risks of new variants? And is the pandemic actually over? To find out, I spoke to Bill Hanage. He's Associate Professor of Epidemiology at Harvard University and a co-director of their Centre for Communicable Disease Dynamics. I first came across Bill after an interview he gave to the BBC in March 2020. So back then he was sounding the alarm about the UK's relaxed approach to COVID-19. And I've found him an incredibly insightful commentator and researcher on COVID ever since. In this conversation, as well as the current state of play with COVID-19, Bill and I discuss what lessons we've learned from COVID-19 and how prepared or unprepared we are for future pandemics. This interview is episode two in our series, Did COVID. In the coming weeks, we'll be releasing conversations on COVID and inequality, COVID and China, and COVID and climate change. To make sure you get full access to all of those shows, you can sign up at patreon.com forward slash crash course pod. Subscriptions start at £3 a month, and we're currently offering a seven-day free trial. So that's patreon.com forward slash crash course pod. If you're already a subscriber, Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Bill, uh, thank you so much for joining us on on Crash Course. Now, we first spoke in April 2020. So I was interviewing you for my other job at, at Navarra Media. Almost three years have passed since then. A hell of a lot, of cha- a hell of a lot has changed. Um, but it's one of those things that the pandemic has ended. And, you know, it, is the pandemic over? Can you get us going on that question? Uh, I, I, you know, I hate that question because I hate over 
basically. I mean, it's not that I would love it to be over, but they don't have like an easy point at which you can say, okay, done, ticker tape parade, we're done, we're, 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 sort, we're sorted. We still have preventable illness and death in amounts that would be considered a huge amount prior to 2020. But it's vastly, vastly, vastly less than where it was. So for most most folks, yep, it's over. And I don't really object to them saying it. But as an epidemiologist, we're going to have a few years more where it's going to be nastier than it needed to be. And I suppose, what does nastier than it needed to be mean? I mean, obviously, more people are dying than they would be if there weren't a, a new virus circulating. But you're saying mm. if we weren't taking easy action that could be preventing those deaths. Is that sort of how I should interpret that, that yeah, statement? It's sort of, easy action, sort of easy action. I mean, at earlier stages, you know, we have the non-pharmaceutical interventions, blah, 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 you know, mask use, which has become very politicised. But what I'm talking about now are sort of structural issues in healthcare. So, for instance, I live in the United States, where due to issues which are long predating the pandemic, some people find it harder, harder to get vaccines, or some people find it harder to get therapy. Some people find it harder to get care when they need it. And a lot of the excess that we're seeing now arise comes from those things. If we did, if we did healthcare better in the US, fewer people would be sick and dying. Looking at the UK, we have a situation where the NHS, which was, you know, which has long needed more funding, and, you know, I would argue smarter funding, um, has just had this huge multiple whammy and you're now seeing excess deaths through things like delayed ambulances and the like yeah i wanted to ask you about excess deaths because i think and this is i suppose particularly depressing because i remember at the start of the pandemic when there was this idea we're having excess deaths now but lots of these people are people who would have well it's a horrible phrase but you know people who would have died quite soon anyway because of the age profile of who COVID 19 hit it hit people especially if they were towards the end of their life obviously lots of people who weren't towards the end of life but a significant number of people are over 80 whatever and i remember there being discussion that maybe we'd have this big sort of wave of excess deaths now but then we would get lower excess deaths in future because people who would have died six months later or two years later had instead died two years previously yeah, during that I, first wave epidemiologists call that mortality displacement or competing risks or more ghoulishly harvesting mm, wow. um and <laughs> Yeah, um, it's. I prefer competing risks myself. The it's probably it may be evident in a few places, but it's not overwhelmingly um, evident. And you do need to be very careful with how you think about these things. It's not at all straightforward. And we've certainly seen a lot of um, excess deaths among younger people. I mean, it might not be driving the headline figures, but people in the prime of life they're not meant to die in the numbers that we've seen them dying. And that's largely as a result of you know, failure to do good pandemic management. And I mean, how do we pass what is causing the increase in excess deaths? I know there you've mentioned sort of cues in the NHS being one of the reasons we, we think we're seeing excess deaths in the UK. Um, I know that people who have COVID-19 written on their death certificate, that is definitely not accounting for all of the excess, excess deaths we're seeing. No. But there was also a lot of discussion. Well, I mean, there still is, obviously, because we're still yet to discover the, the full effects of COVID, whether or not it's the case that COVID has just sort of, in an almost imperceptible way, made us all a little bit less healthy. So, you know, you know they say it's, a, it's a disease that hits all of the organs. And so therefore, if we're getting more deaths from all cause mortality, all different kinds of things, could that all be to do with, you know, all of us being a little bit less healthy because we we got struck by COVID and it somewhat damaged us. That, that will be a part of it if you ask. I don't think we have evidence to know exactly how much. I mean, acute viral illnesses have long-term consequences. We've known that for years, years and years and years. And in case you hadn't noticed, we've had a lot of acute viral illness the last few years. So it's not at all surprising that some of that is adding up to fairly large numbers of people with long-term issues. I don't think that it explains the excess mortality, though. I think that it's a relatively small in comparison to stuff like... Um, we, we have seen cancers being identified at later stages, for instance, because screening was disrupted because people weren't able to come in and do that. And by the way, before anybody runs away and starts saying that was because of lockdowns or people losing their mind and doing 
and overreacting. No, no, it's because people weren't able to come in because they were sick with COVID, or it's because the people who would have been running the screening, you know, the scans, they were sick. So there's a whole load of things that go into this, and um, it's going to be... There are going to be people writing PhD theses about this for decades. And I suppose in in terms of the fact that, you know, separate from sort of these these cancer delays, etc., and sort of how it's COVID has left the NHS in our country in, in stress, these ways that it makes us iller in the long term, sort of this has been, and especially sort of on Twitter, one of the reasons why people say we've got to go for zero mm-hmm. COVID, we can't possibly live with this disease because it's attacking all of our different organs. Um, this is living with the virus is not a sustainable way to live. I mean, how would you respond to that? Do you think there's something to that? Or do you think that's, you know, that ship has sailed? Um, I would, I personally think that the benefit of encouraging improved access to healthcare, improved sick pay, things like that, those are the things where we would have the most marginal benefit. Because look, you know how many things we've eradicated? Smallpox. We don't have a vaccine that's capable of doing that. And something like Omicron, unfortunately, you're not going to be able to control it. I wish it were otherwise. But what we can do is try and make sure that we structure our societies such that we do not have huge inequities in outcome. We can try and structure our societies so we look after the people who need it. We can try and make sure that those people who are unfortunate enough to have long-term effects of the virus are cared for. And these are just like kind of, these are somewhat moral issues as much as scientific ones. Um, and that might get us into issues which are not scientific, but to do with values. Mm. So just, just, just to clarify, that, that issue with smallpox is because that vaccine was what's called a sterilizing vaccine, right? So if, you, yeah, if you're vaccinated yeah, yeah. with smallpox, and you can't catch it, therefore you can't pass it on. Whereas- smallpox produces, yeah, exactly. Infection with smallpox or, you know, or with the vaccine, vaccination produces long-lasting sterilizing immunity. You cannot transmit it. Um, you cannot be infected, you cannot transmit. And so once enough people have immunity, the virus runs out of places to go. And that's not the case with COVID, unfortunately. Instead, the more times people have encountered the virus, the more times they have been vaccinated to an extent, or how recently they have been vaccinated, alters how severely ill they are. And that can mean that we have a more manageable stress upon our healthcare systems. If you ask me, I'd love that to be a sterilizing vaccine. I don't think that there's one coming anytime soon. How often do you think we're going to get COVID? I mean, because there, there was talk about it becoming a seasonal virus. So sort of like you get these waves every winter, as you do with sort of influenza. I mean, if, if you look at the sort of the stats on the NHS website, it looks like we get four a year, which is yeah. a lot, right? That, I feel like that sort of surprised lots of epidemiologists. Why are we seeing four a year? And will we always see four a year? And the mo- well, there is a bunch of things which go into that. The first thing is the waning of immunity following infection, which is it happens r- over a period of a few months to a year. You know, a year out will have very little protection. But also, the fact that we are now seeing this kind of procession of one lineage after another, which is like be able to infect a little bit more of the population because it's unlocking a little bit of that immune space, which, you know, we are mostly immune. Most people right now cannot be infected with the virus, but it won't stay like that forever. You know, if you wait long enough, all of us will be infectable. And the virus is just like going through, chipping away, right, okay, I can infect like, ooh, 10, 20% more. Okay, I'll go, go through that. Ooh, now they are all immune, run out of space. I'll evolve to be able to infect a little bit more. And it'll keep doing that. And we expect that over time it will become substantially milder for the great majority of people. But, you know, I have to tell you that it's not ever going to be it's not ever going to be entirely hunky dory. If we go back to look at the other coronaviruses, we've known for years that they can cause devastating outbreaks in nursing homes, in long term care facilities. And I think in the long run, that's likely where we're going to end up with COVID. Mild illness in the vast majority of younger people, long-term effects in a small but unfortunate minority, and old people, it would be a serious risk. Let's talk about, well, I, I don't want to say, let's talk about that unfortunate minority. I suppose that, that would be to preempt the, the answer. 
But I suppose when there was this discussion about living with COVID and whether it's sort of tolerable for it to be circulating among society, I think one of the strongest responses came from um, either people who had chronic illnesses or people sort of advocating for people with, with chronic yeah. illnesses or suppressed immune systems. Because you, you can sort of imagine, as we do with the other coronaviruses we've been living with, for, well, I mean, actually, we don't, but we probably should um, have a system whereby before you go into a care home, you get tested, right? Because we know that yeah, they can do lots yeah, of... That, that's, that would be a pretty good lots idea. Lots of damage actually. there. And in fact, that would actually be a good thing in general, I think, sort of having a, you know, recognizing that not all infections are alike and working very hard to prevent the bad ones. You know, we've got things like rapid tests. You know, why don't we develop good rapid tests for other things which would be serious? But I suppose where I'm going with this, though, is that in a care home, that's that's practical because you've got people who all live in this space. They're coming towards the end of their life. That's normally the, the nature of a care home. You know, they're, they're not expecting now to live sort of full lives out in society. But if the people who need to be sort of cocooned away from COVID-19 are both the elderly and people of any age who might be to some degree immunosuppressed, then are we condemning uh, a section of society to live as if they were in a care home their whole lives? I mean, it, yeah, um, I think in the long term, that's unlikely to be the case, because I think, as I say, in the long term, it's going to be a case of these things becoming relatively like the current coronas and people in those categories have lived alongside infections with the current coronas. Now, the question is, which I don't know the answer to, how long is that going to take? And it is, yeah, the, it might be. It is the variable there how, how responsive our immune systems are. So like maybe by the sixth time we get it, it's just like a common cold. Or is it that over yeah. time the, yeah, yeah, the yeah. flu and, and will get inherently of, less, less trans, not transmissible, sorry, less, less virulent, less dangerous? Yeah, a lot of people will have had COVID over this last... Um, winter and quite possibly not really known about it um you know speaking personally i had a i had an exposure i was alongside somebody who definitely could have infected me and was testing positive i had very mild symptoms i never tested positive um and then they resolved and i went around my i went around my business um doing a test every day wearing a mask um, being open about the fact that where I was and people could make their choice. And obviously I wore a mask whenever I was in a place where I could have infected somebody else. But those are like common sense things which people can do. And I think we're going to, we are heading in that direction. But you know, Michael, one thing, one thing which is really important for the folks that you're talking about there, um, we've sort of lost, we sort of dropped the ball when it comes to therapies and things like that. Um, ways in which um, you know, we, we had, the, there was like an antibody cocktail, which in Evershield, which I don't think was ever used in the UK, but it's a thing which would, it worked in the US, it was available and it would give people in those categories some protection if they were infected for about six months. Unfortunately, the viruses currently circulating have basically managed to sidestep those antibodies. So we ought to be working to keep things going to be able to have good therapies for people who are going to need them. That's what matters. You know, it's all about coming up with ways to care for the people who need it. I want to come back to your point about common sense, because I think sort of you, your suggestion there was if, if there's you were testing every day because your partner had COVID and so therefore there was a risk you would have it. And so therefore testing every day and putting on a mask is, 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 is sensible. Now, that's I, the sort of norms we've shifted into in Britain aren't that. So I've been looking at the government website, which is very much to say, if you're feeling well enough to go about your business, go about your business. The only people who need to test for COVID-19 are people who are in those vulnerable categories, because if they test positive, they should be, I mean, I'm not sure precisely what drug it is, but we do have a system, I think, whereby if you're in one of those categories, you can say, I've got COVID-19, can you send me some antivirals? Yeah, I think, I think we have Paxlovid, but I think it's quite, uh, I mean, it's less available in the UK than it is. Right. But so the, the government policy essentially is, is no one else should really test for COVID, which isn't, you know, unusual, mm. because we have, you know, th there's a lot of diseases and viruses where I think the NHS decides you knowing whether or not you're positive isn't particularly important because knowing yeah, you're positive yes, could yeah. have worse consequences than just going about your business. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, th th this is a whole thing about, um, this is, this is a whole thing about testing and medicine, you know, um, testing is a bit like picking a nose in public. You ought to have a plan for what you're going to do if you find something. So basically if you're not going to change your behavior, then testing has very little purpose. Um, as it was, I was going to change my behavior and I had the test. So, 
I'm going to I'm going to make use of them. I mean, also the types of trans. I mean, this is an interesting thing you said there. Um, when you think about introducing viruses to high risk networks, low risk networks, etc., um, I'm I'm not actually particularly sold on mask mandates or things like that right now. But if there were places where they are most likely to be important and useful, I think it's stuff like particular parts of healthcare. Or maybe public transport, because those folks we were talking about earlier who are anxious, immunosuppressed, they might feel more comfortable being able to take public transport, and we shouldn't be making them feel that they can't. Why do you think, I mean, I don't know what it's like in America, but in the UK, and I mean, I, I suppose this series as well is, did COVID change the world? So I do want to talk about these, the, these legacies. And I remember sort of at the start of the pandemic, or at least in the first year, I was thinking, obviously, I didn't want society to be anything like it was under under lockdown. The, the idea that we'd have no. test and trace no. beyond sort of like a year or so was, was, was horrific. But I did think potentially we would get a more, say, Japanese or East Asian attitude towards sort of like public health, whereby in the winter, it was a bit normal if you're on a busy tube for everyone to be wearing a, a face mask. Because to me, you know, I, I find getting a cold just a bit annoying, you know. So it seemed like that was probably a social norm that probably makes sense. We'll probably all get a it slightly less often in the winter. The moment here that the mandate went, no one wore a mask. And I'll say I don't wear a mask either. And that's because I, I very much, I don't want to stick out. I go with, I, I'm very much a follower of social norms when it comes to these things. So I would feel awkward wearing a mask on the tube because no one else is wearing a mask. But I suppose why, and I suppose tell me if it's different in America, but it seemed surprising to me how quickly we as a culture sort of rejected that, well, I mean, that sort of culture which I see in East Asia, which is to say, yeah, you wear masks in winter on a tube, why wouldn't you do? Why have we been so quick to reject that? Oh, good luck. That's, that's a hard question. Um, and I'll be honest, I, I don't know the answer to it because I think it's more sociological than scientific. Um, here in the US, you quite often see people wearing masks. Um, indeed, they are still mandated on the shuttle, which I take to work. They are there is also it's become aligned with a particular type of attitude because for some folks wearing a mask has become a sign that I care about you and it's and it's saying that and that's actually I think that's great you know it's obviously nice that people care about each other that's awesome but though it's also the case of folk have thought if you don't wear a mask that means you don't care that's not necessarily as true but there's like, you know, there's, it's fairly easy also to see people whose lives have been affected by COVID, people who have lost family members, people who are very anxious wearing a mask. Why should we be surprised? But we are, but you said something else. Why did we flip back? Um, I don't know. I think that there was a partially a strong wish to hope for everything to be over and a highly visible sign that something is going on is a mask. So if anything, actually, sorry, I ran out of steam there, but this is something which you could definitely listen to. This is a smart point that one of my postdocs made. We wonder why it is that people are so quick to forget pandemics and they don't take action to make them better in future. It might be that it's really hard to take that action just afterwards because nobody wants to get back there. Nobody wants to think about it. People don't want to learn the lessons because they're afraid of what they might find. And it's only a few years later when memories have faded that people pick up that thorny problem again. And by then, of course, you've forgot a lot. I suppose it's a, it's a, I mean, to be honest, I'm going to keep talking about East Asia, even though I'm not an expert on East Asian society and politics. So there might, there might be some sweeping generalizations I'm making, which are, which are unfair. But the impression I got from the sort of the early days of the pandemic was that one of the reasons why the East Asian countries, I'm just talking about Korea, Japan, et cetera, Taiwan, were particularly good at responding to COVID-19 is because they had had SARS. So they learned their lessons quite quickly, I think, was the impression I got. And it, it feels like we we potentially haven't gone through that same process. Although I suppose if there were to be a new sort of novel pathogen come along, I suppose people would probably put face masks on much quicker than they did last time around. So maybe we won't know until the next one arrives whether or not we've changed as a society. I, I really hope we don't. I really hope that we don't find out the answer <laughs> to that question. <laughs> um, but you, your mentioning of Japan is actually really interesting because um, 
places mostly in the West spoke an awful lot about Sweden, should have been talking about Japan. I mean, Japan had comparatively few restrictions other than a few points, you know, when things got really bad. Had substantial amounts of masks, but not, you know, not mandated in the way that they would be here. Guidance to um, avoid enclosed spaces with poor ventilation, you know, large gatherings, things like that. There were three Cs. Sanbitsu, um, I think the word is. Um, I'll find that, remember the third at some point. Or you can look it up. Um, and it was highly successful. And they didn't, they did not, despite having an extremely old population, there were not the types of issues that we saw here. And that was with very, very mild interventions. So such things are possible. The other thing they had, which was interesting, was this backward contact tracing. I mean, we did a lot of forward contact tracing, and I don't know how many people listening um, <laughs> got a call from the test and trace, like, you know, a week after they had tested positive by which point they would have transmitted. And, you know, the person they transmitted to would likely be off to transmit. Absolutely pointless. Really, you're just, like, keeping score for the virus, that's it. Which is kind of interesting for epidemiological purposes, but has little public health direct benefit. Backward contact tracing figures out where people get something. And it's especially useful for something which does super spreading, which this did. And so that's part of the experience of thinking about um, SARS-1, and also recognizing the nature of transmission and seeing it as being more akin to SARS-1 or, or tuberculosis or something. Whereas the plans elsewhere were often directed at influenza. And believe me, there will be books to be written about what happens when you confuse an appropriate response to influenza with an appropriate response to COVID. And is, is that especially because of the sort of the disagreement over whether it was airborne? So I think straight away, Japan sort of said ventilation matters. And whereas in, in the UK mm. and Western Europe, we were saying washing your hands matters. Yeah, I think that there was a lot of that. Um, and I mean, airborne is one of those words which has technical meanings, which are not necessarily, you know, as understood as we would like. Um, but to a first approximation, yeah. That's it. I mean, the idea that ventilation is important um, was picked up by Japan really early on and was part of their advice. So it, and it, you know, it helps. And actually, this is an interesting point right now. Um, lots of folks, um, I know that you've commented about this, have said that, you know, the impetus of this ought to be for us to think again about cleaning our air, ventilation. You know, cholera led us to improve our sanitation. Why aren't we doing the same for our air? Well, it's a good question. It's a very good question. The, I think the answer is, I mean, at the very least, we ought to be improving ventilation when it comes to new builds. Yeah? But the older builds, you know, retrofitting the places, like some of those old buildings in the UK, could be very, very, very expensive. And I don't know if you noticed, but there's not a huge amount of money around in a lot of places, especially in the UK, after I'm not going to make a comment about the last prime minister. But yeah, that got rid of a lot of resources. And so that forces tough choices. And, you know, for me, ventilation's up there. That's a very important thing. On the other hand, I don't get to make those decisions. I want to come back to Japan because I think it is often used by people in public health and by people who were sort of critical of the government's response to COVID and wanted it to be a bit stronger because they say, look, it, you, you know, the, pe the people who don't want COVID action always say it's either strong actions or, or you know, I suppose it's, it's either we live with the virus or we have to take these quite authoritarian measures. So we've got to make this sort of very difficult choice. And then you have sort of Indy Sage and sort of the, which is a sort of a very sort of they originally zero COVID in, in the UK sort of say no we don't have to make particularly tough choices we just have to make smart choices and then so with Japan people sort of emphasize ventilation and things which were cost free but I think a key part of Japan's response to COVID and one of the reasons it worked was also travel bans right so there were not people going in or out of Japan throughout the COVID pandemic and that's the only reason they would be able to do backward contact tracing because obviously you can't do backward contact tracing unless you've got quite a small number of of introductions of COVID-19 into the community. But contact tracing in general it becomes pointless after a stage. Yeah. So what do we think about travel bans now? 
Travel bans remain... Well, in the first place, a travel ban only really makes sense if there's a big difference between the presence of the thing in question and the place you're leaving and the place you're going to. If there ain't, then there's no point in a travel ban. Um, the other circumstance is how long it buys you. And depending on the circumstance, it can actually be quite helpful. So you can see that the likes of Australia or New Zealand, for instance, managed to have extremely small amounts of infection. Really, really impressive. But once you start getting into Omicron space, yeah, it's, it's essentially pointless. And in fact, with Omicron, the thing which is perhaps the best lesson there is that South Africa, which was incredibly, admirably transparent and open about the presence of this new, highly transmissible variant, got slammed to travel bans, you know, which were economically harmful to to the country. And, you know, you know, when we talk about transparency, you know, contrast that with a notoriously non-transparent country, China, which is, has been as, bad, as transparent as this concrete floor that I'm on. Um, and, you know, we want people to be transparent, but then when South Africa was, it got hit with travel bans. And I think that it's a very nuanced issue. Um, I think that they can be useful in some contexts, most not. And I also think that by the time we were aware of the virus, it was almost certainly too late to prevent it becoming a pandemic. What do we know about long COVID at this point in time? I think that's, and especially sort of anyone of my age or someone who isn't sort of elderly in one of those risk categories, um, their big worry with COVID mm. is understandably long COVID. No one wants to get long COVID. Lots of people still yeah. suffering from long COVID. I mean, what have we learned about the risks of it, the potential treatments for it, how long we're going to have to live with the the risk of potentially getting it? Am I even at risk of getting it if, if I've had COVID three times already and didn't get it before? Oh, well, if you've had COVID... Okay, right. First thing to point out here, um, if you've had COVID three times and you've not developed long COVID, it doesn't mean you cannot, but it suggests that you're not exactly predisposed to it. So long COVID is a grab bag term for long-term consequences of infection. And it's very, very poorly defined. Yeah. So some people who have been seriously ill, ventilated, they're going to have long-term problems just because of the fact they've been really, really sick. And you don't like, you don't bounce back from being, you know, intubated. It takes time. If we put those aside and we start thinking about the other um, parts of it, there's certainly a group who have long-term issues in terms of fatigue, brain fog, and so on, um, less ability to exercise. There are some who have been frankly disabled. And then there's a larger pool who have milder, um, you know, relatively mild effects of it. But, you know, I don't mean to trivialise that because, you know, not being able to taste your food is kind of a, is a big deal. It makes a, has a big impact on your quality of life. So the numbers who are in the category of being severely ill are smaller than those that you will sometimes hear, like 10 or 20%. You know, 10 or 20% report these things. That's not the same thing as saying that they are severely ill, but that's also not to say that you could dis should dismiss it because even 1% of people ending up with severe long-term consequences is a huge, huge number deserving all of our support and research. In terms of treatments, first thing, vaccination helps as it seems does prior infection. Although I will point out that there is this kind of thing, which is if there's any predisposition, predisposition to get long COVID, you're more likely to get it the first few times you're infected than later on. In turn, we also have some evidence that within some people, and it's quite possible there's more than one thing going on, but within at least some people, the virus is replicating in some compartment that we haven't really identified yet. Um, people think it might be connected to the gut and that you can find little bits of spike protein in the blood. Now, if that's so and it contributes to, uh, to their illness, it's possible we can clear the infection with Paxlovid or something like that. 
And there are trials going on um, even as I speak in order to see whether or not that's the case. But we don't have the results yet. Is there a danger of a more deadly variant than Omicron coming along? That would presumably change a lot of the discussion we're having. Yeah, I think that's unlikely. Um, I'm, and there are several reasons for that. The first is that, well, the first thing is to note that it's not true that things evolve to get milder over time necessarily. You know, the OG virus in 2020 was less. So OG, that was, I'm not actually being scientific there. I am literally using OG in the sense that it would be popularly understood. Sorry. So the original uh, Wuhan strain that went global in 2020 was less virulent. It was less likely to kill people than alpha, which was also more transmissible. And even more virulent and transmissible was delta. Omicron is less serious than delta. But if you were unvaccinated, it would be about as dangerous as the original, you know, the, the one back from 2020. So that's still pretty bad. On the other hand, among populations which have got lots and lots and lots of immunity, that's not turning into large surges of hospitalizations and deaths, which is a great thing. In order for there to be a big change in virulence, we would need to not only have immune evasion enabling infection, but also a big change in the types of illness people are getting, a big increase in severity. And I wouldn't say it's impossible. It just seems less likely to me because it's not particularly beneficial um, to the virus to be able to sidestep the T-cell immunity, which moderates that. If it's able to infect people already by getting over the initial response and evading the antibodies, that's fine for the virus. You know, evading the T cells doesn't really need it. So I don't think it's very likely. But again, you know, I never bet against natural selection. And a lot of people have been infected with Omicron, right, since it first emerged. And we, we haven't yeah. had a, 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 a variant which is capable of displacing yeah. it. And we've had billions of actually, actually, you know, infections. Presumably. Nerdy thing, which you might or might not have realized, you know, all the variants you've heard of, they all basically arose from viruses in the first initial wave over a relatively short period. Um, and then they just went, they like went quiet, they went off the radar and they came back a few months later. And then when they started causing infections, we noticed, we noticed them. What parts of our response to COVID do you think did more harm than good? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think that, yeah, overall, I think that the thing that did more harm than good was a settling into what I've called lethal inflexibility, a refusal to countenance that things must change if you're going to get to where you want to go. And that comes in both directions. So it's a complicated answer. Let me take schools as, a, as, an, as, as an EG, an example. There was a lot of concern about kids missing schooling, and that's very well-placed. I think that's extremely important. And, you know, we, we should always be very careful when we close schools. On the other hand... It's probably only true in 2020 that kids were mostly not likely to transmit the virus because of the nature of what was going around then. Once you get alpha, once you get delta, no, they totally transmit the virus. Um, and schools link households. So the efficacy of school closures can vary over time. And we'd be careful to not... We, we The thing we really have to do is to not learn the wrong lessons from this. Next time, we don't want to be fighting the last war. We know that influenza is very well transmitted by kids. And so if we get a flu pandemic, if, heaven forfend, you know, H5N1 starts transmitting, we should not be taking things off the table ahead of time. And I think that I'm, I'm genuinely anxious that we are 
learning the wrong lessons, we are settling into a bunch of received wisdom, which is entirely counter to our um, to what we should be learning. So anyway, that didn't really answer your question, did it? Um, but I think that the I think the idea that what what was really damaging was a situation where we what what was the thing that um, Johnson said something like twelve weeks to stop the spread yeah. or something. Yeah. Well, yeah, okay, right, that got things under control, but it was going to come back. It was always going to come back. We knew it was going to come back. That's the point at which you ought to sit down and have a grown-up conversation with people and say, you know what, this virus is going to be really, really hard to control. What are we going to do? Um, how, are we going to, how are we going to get this while we don't have a vaccine? Um, what are we going to do to help people to prevent them being infected? How are we going to support folks? This is going to, oh, it's lovely in the summer, but it's going to be bad in the winter. And that... That was a terrible mistake, and it was like an infantilized. It was an. It infantilized the um, state of politics um, in the UK, certainly, and in the United States. And I just wish we'd done better at that. But maybe I just expect too much. I suppose, in terms of you know the inflexibility going both ways, where I thought maybe you were going with your answer, and I suppose how I meant the question as well, also is I mean because we can point to loads of ways in which we might learn the wrong lessons or politicians made terrible decisions. But is there anything that you think sort of the public health community pushed for, which which oh, they yeah. got, and you know, in retrospect, they probably shouldn't have pushed for it. I that's a great question. I think I think that the public health community didn't get a lot of what they asked for and what they pushed for. To be entirely honest, um, but what I do think is the. I think the worst thing that happened still is that we didn't have that grown-up conversation. For whatever reason, we weren't able to get beyond a rather stupid, you know, you have two camps um, arrangement. But one thing which I think is interesting there is, let me go to Australia. I think Australia has very, very good claim to be incredibly proud of the way it handled the... um, first few years of the pandemic. Its emergence from that was, you know, it was tough. And that's tough because you've been told that you shouldn't have a virus and then suddenly the virus is there. And there was probably a lot of overreaction at that stage because of the fact that people were struggling to transition to a point where it was not as, it was much more dangerous than the flu. Once a lot of people are vaccinated, those things change. And that means your communication has to change. That means you have to, um, you have to, it's as important to tell people when things have changed for the better as it is to tell them when things are about to change for the worse. And we haven't always done that well. And do you think there have been some people in the public health community who have been too reluctant to reassure people because they're sort of in this mindset where our job is to sound the alarm. And so they're constantly sounding the alarm, even if actually what people need is some encouragement to, you know, live your life to the full extent. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that there are, I mean, there's certainly a, some people who, I will be honest, they are mostly not actually located within the public health professional community. Um, But they are, they are essentially advocates, and that's not a bad thing. You know, advocates for health are not a bad thing. Um, that's not the same thing as being in the position of having to make the tough choices about, you know, because you, ca- you can't, you know, because you think you know the answer to everything doesn't mean you can make everybody agree with you. You've got to persuade and you've got to advocate in different ways and you've got to, lots of people have a role to play in this. And I personally have always tried to be as straightforward as possible. You know, there are bad things and there are good things. You know, let's be, let, let's, let's just follow the science and follow the data. I think, and again, it's, you know, you need to be sensitive when one says this, but sort of, I think everyone can probably agree that the pandemic would have been worse for our societally. It would have been, would have been more traumatic if, the age profile it affected had been different. So say it hadn't struck people towards the end of their life, but it struck people towards the beginning of their life. If this had been a pandemic which had been particularly lethal to children, then I think it, you know, we would be living in a different world right now. And so I suppose I, I, I want to know from you from sort of a virology perspective. I mean, it, 
Is it possible that the next pandemic kills a different age profile than COVID-19? Yes, absolutely. Um, look at the 1918-19 influenza was famous for killing people in middle age. It was completely, it, it did not discriminate by age at all. Um, typically, influenza has a what you know a bathtub distribution. It you know it was very bad for young people and very bad for old, very young people, and very bad for old people. And those who are our age, yeah, we're mostly okay. Um, but nineteen eighteen nineteen, yeah, there were lots and lots of people who died in the in their thirties, forties, twenties, and there's no reason why that won't happen next time. Um, one thing which I do have a lot of concern about is that people don't really grasp the issues of transmission. Uh, we tend to think that Ebola is like the sort of thing which we're going to be, we should be worrying about. Ebola is never going to cause a pandemic. Not unless it changes in ways which are almost unimaginable. Ebola is scary because it kills 50-60% of people more depending on access to like supportive care. Um, but if you take a virus like COVID, say, which kills 1% of people, but which infects everybody in the world in due course, that's a lot. And that's huge. And we don't, and the thing is that you don't come up with good estimates of the infection fatality rate until a lot of people have been infected, by which stage it's out of control. And, you know, I can't believe, I, I still find, find it hard to believe. Um, I was on a paper that was published towards the end of 2020, which was estimating the infection fatality rate and how it changed with age. It goes up a lot. Um, and we were still arguing. We, we were still arguing. I was still getting hate mail for, you know, talking about how this ridiculous virus was dangerous and stuff. And it was, you know, it's, it's been killing people for months and you don't believe that they're dying. It's very, that's a very, very difficult place to be in. And I don't think we've learned that lesson either. I really think that um, if H5N1 started transmitting, um, but only killed 2 3% of people, we'd probably have a number of you know, folks up in arms saying, oh, but we don't know how many mild infections there are. Well, you know, it's really, 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 really hard to know how many mild infections there are because you don't tend to see them in an, in an infectious disease emergency when you're concentrating somewhere else. And more to the point, you would not know how bad things were until it was too late for a big space of things which are really bad, including COVID. How prepared do you think we are for a different kind of pandemic? And I suppose I want to come back to this age profile thing because this is... What really terrifies me is something along the line of COVID-19, which kills children or like young adults. Because I, I do think, I think, you know, obviously that sort of narrative of these people were going to die anyway was sort of callous and horrible. And sort of these were people who were, you know, dying alone with their doctors sort of in, in, in masks. And it was a horrible experience. You know, it, it really mattered whether or not COVID-19 got into those care homes. But a, a pandemic which kills as many people as COVID-19, but which takes people in their prime or in their youth... I, I'm not sure we as a society have sort of prepared for what that would mean. And I I don't know what our response even should be. I feel like we should probably go for a sort of China response, which is all, all, all every, every sort of tool is potentially legit legitimate because the, the, the consequences would be so terrible and so severe were we to let this sort of get out. I mean, what's your take on that? I think that the I think that we should recognize that it's possible even if it's you know unlikely to happen in the next month but it's certainly possible and ask the question that you you just asked and then figure out how we might be able to make that more sustainable because one of the things that has been very very clear is that the stronger interventions that we had to put in place for covid were difficult to sustain and how could we do that well there's quite a few ways. I mean, I, I know that I bang on about this a bit sometimes, but, you know, uh, sick pay, you know, just the ability of people to not infect others is a huge deal. Um, but also being able to 
respond in a way which is not necessarily huge and very, very disruptive, but relatively early on while you're trying to gather information. Don't sit there waiting until you've got a massive powder keg underneath you of transmission. Um, but do things which are more... You know, take interventions relatively early. I, I will, I'll quote a politician who wouldn't want me to um, attach this to them, but they commented in a private meeting, if there's one thing I've learned from this, it's that it's better to take action earlier than late. Preach. Yes, that's absolutely true. Um, and figuring out what, you know, coming up with some plans for what those might be. One thing that I would, by the way, absolutely love, Michael, which would be a really, really good thing to do, would be to have that discussion right now and come up with a set of pre-arranged, pre-agreed triggers. You know, if this happens, we will do this, which is a law which can be put in place, which doesn't require discussion, doesn't require argument, doesn't require spoilers from people popping up on question time and saying, you know, you know, talking heads saying, oh, but you know, you don't really know how dangerous it is, or any of that. It's just people who are ready to, you know, we, we know what we're going to do, and it's a no regrets trigger. If it turns out that it's okay, fine, we might, we can go back and revisit the triggers. And if it's not, well, we'll be bloody glad that we had those in place. If there is a next pandemic, I mean, there will be a next pandemic. So it's all if, when, 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 it, when, when is it not, not if. Um, do you think a vaccine will be made significantly quicker? And I suppose on the alternative end of the sort of spectrum and the, the worst scenario is, could you have a, a, vac a, a virus that spreads like COVID-19, but for which a vaccine is beyond our scientific capacity? That's a great question. Um, I find it a little difficult to imagine, but, you know, there are more things in heaven and earth than I dreamt of in my philosophy, um, which, I, you know, I've learned that the hard way. Um, I think that it's more likely that we would be able to come up with a vaccine of the sort that we've got here, which is not perfect, far from, but which can do something. Which brings me to another really, really good question, which we haven't asked enough and which the UK may actually be an exemplar of. Should we stockpile vaccines which are not great, but which we could hope reasonably would be enough to blunt the worst consequences, give people a fighting chance? Um, should we do that for flu? It's a good question. The, the UK um, managed to do one of the probably best decisions of the pandemic in splitting the doses um, in the in like January 2021 because the alpha variant was rampant um, and it was really important to give people that chance to be able to have some protection before it reached them and that was a very very difficult decision a very bold decision and I think that history has told us that it was absolutely the right one but it's not perfect it's not it's it's not the most successful vaccine against severe illness um it's certainly not capable of preventing um infection but it is one dose much much better than the alternative and i think that you know we have to recognize that what's the alternative when it comes to vaccine production i suppose this is one example of sort of many strands of the experience of the past two years and I suppose hopes that were raised at the you know at the peak of the pandemic whereas and I, I think I thought you know this pandemic you know it's obviously awful but it's the kind of thing that could revolutionize healthcare and make us take lots of other diseases more seriously to take public health more seriously ventilation whatever but also that it might be a spur to um, sort of medical technological revolution which could make us healthier in other ways so I remember thinking at the beginning, well, if this is a coronavirus and lots of our colds are from coronaviruses, maybe we're going to learn the cure for a cold. And then sort of one sort of consolation prize from COVID will be that we'll, we'll get this vaccine that means we'll never get COVID-19 again, but we'll also never get a cold again, which will be nice. Um, has there been a, a medical revolution? I think that the mRNA vaccines have to count as a medical revolution. Um, I think that they are extraordinary really um they 
we are so lucky that they work as well as they did. And I'm not going to, by the way, I don't mean to diss the AstraZeneca or J&J efforts, even though I think that there's a lot of, um, there's a lot to be discovered and written about the process of how those things were made. And the mRNA vaccines are unquestionably a gigantic advance. It's not necessarily clear that they will be easily turned to other infections, although it's certainly going to be a hell of an interesting to find out if they are. Um, the concept that we would, could get a vaccine against all coronas, um, it's, not a, it's something which would be very nice. To be entirely honest, I'm not sure that, the, um, that there's a huge interest in that unfortunately, because the mRNAs, together with infection, have, su have done such a good job at reducing the headline figures of hospitalizations and deaths that I find it difficult to imagine a huge impetus or the same kind of impetus to be developing something which would be um, better. But you know, I certainly think it would be a good idea to try. But I have to tell you one other thing. If you didn't get coronavirus, there's a lot of other things that cause those symptoms, you know? It's like, um, you know, rhinoviruses, adenoviruses, um, respiratory syncytial virus, you know, and they're nasty. I had, you know, I had RSV a few months ago and I was coughing for well over a month, wearing a mask because I didn't want to frighten people. Why did we all get so ill this winter? And I mean, I, I, I think this is this is not just I think this is data, not just anecdote, but sort of I suppose for the anecdote, mm. this winter was the first time I got flu and knew it. You know, sort of like I was in bed, cold sweats, felt like I was going to die. You know, obviously, obviously, I wasn't going to die, but you know what I mean. It was it was a sort of physical experience I hadn't actually had before. Oh, really sick. And I felt like, wow, this yeah. is what flu is like. Um, well, it's, it's there are. Two, well, there are two reasons for that. Um, they're not mutually exclusive. Um, and we're still figuring out exactly which was going on. And they have to do with immunity. So the fact that people were not exposed over the last two years or were exposed to other respiratory viruses at far lower rates means that there is a larger pool of people who can both be infected and who, if infected, will be severely ill. That's, you know, it's both of them, because um, you wane, you know, you, you, your, your immunity is not such, you know, you can see this actually from COVID vaccines. Your immunity can be boosted, such, or you, no, not boosted, it's the wrong word, because of boosters. You can gain immunity which will protect you from being severely ill and getting really sick, but not protect you from getting infected. And for some people, we'll have waned past that so that they are able to get really sick. But they're also more likely to be infected because there's more people who can be infected. And if you look at the um, flu and RSV seasons uh, here in the United States, I'm not, I don't know about the data in the UK, they came up really fast, really early, and they went down quickly, which is consistent with lots of people being infected in fairly short order. So hopefully next year, it'll be less bad. I think we all expect it to be less bad. And so the, I, I mean, I had a question I think to, I put to Twitter. I didn't get a particularly satisfying answer. I mean, it's not the best, it's not the best way of doing scientific inquiry, say. I suppose. But my, my question was, no. was that the first time I had caught the flu virus or was it the first time I had caught the flu virus and my body wasn't capable of sort of fighting it off in an effective way? I, we wouldn't, we don't, I wouldn't be no for you unless I had some like blood I can provide them after, got, the, after the interview if you're. <laughs> but it, it's certainly, yeah. but it's certainly, tr it is certainly true that we miss a lot of mild flu. We have this, we have this, um, there's actually a slightly misleading um, trope that, you know, if you've had flu, you know it because you're on your back for a week. It's like, nope, nope. There is actually quite a lot of mild flu which people don't, um, you know, people just don't end up being ill enough to get counted. Now, exactly how much there is, it's very hard to say, but there's certainly quite a bit. Does it matter where COVID came from? Yes and no. Um, I'll start with the no. Um, 
there are two hypotheses on the table which are currently in conflict. A um, accidental leak from a laboratory in Wuhan which studied viruses of this nature and has been studying them for years. Or a zoonotic transfer, meaning from an animal in a market which is also in Wuhan. And those have been set up very much in conflict. Now, I'd argue that to an extent it doesn't matter because we know that nasty viruses can come from markets. We know that. It's where the original SARS came from. And we know that viruses can escape from labs and cause outbreaks. So we should have big biosecurity. If you don't, you know, if you don't believe me on that, think about the foot and mouth outbreak, not the one about 20 years ago, but the more recent one in 2007 or something like that. That was a leak from a lab. Um, and so we know that can happen. So you want to have great biosecurity in those labs. And you want to be, you know, we want to be careful about the way that animals are traded in these markets such that we can avoid future zoonotic transfers. It's not a case of either or. Now, this is, and now this is why it does matter. It does matter because we do need transparency about the way that people handle viruses. We do need transparency about outbreaks. And I am on, you know, personally, I am, I personally am of the view that the virus emerged from the market, but I would not discount the possibility that it could have come from the lab. And I would like to be very careful to make sure that nothing like that happened in future. That's, you know, that's important. On the other hand, there's a lot of other things China could have done, which it did not do. We mentioned um, that the infection fatality rate is a really important thing to understand. Had China done a serological survey of Wuhan and released the data in the late spring or mid-spring of 2020, it would have enabled us to pretty much nail that. And it would have been fine. But, you know, that was not done. And it would have been hugely advantageous to the world, but they didn't. Um, I think we need to encourage better transparency. We really, really need that. Unfortunately, I don't think that's going to be served by the way in which people are talking about these issues. I suppose the, the big controversy about the... Because suppose everyone can agree that if you've got viruses in labs, you should have good biosecurity. And probably it's a good idea yeah. if we have, you know, better hygiene practices when humans are in very close contact with, with, with animals, and especially wild animals. But it, the real controversial thing with the lab leak theory is this idea of gain-of-function research. So gain-of-function research being the yeah. idea that you make... You find a, a virus which is naturally occurring and you add features to it to make it more effective. Now, you might do that to try and yep. preempt where evolution is ultimately going to take the virus and have a, a vaccine in advance. But people say this is unnecessarily risky. I mean, do, what have we learned about gain of function research, I suppose, from the from the COVID pandemic and from the discussion around its origins? Um. I think that what we've learned about gain-of-function research from the pandemic is that, you know, think about what makes this especially dangerous. It's transmissible. And it's not actually that virulent in most people. It's not that it's super virulent. It's that it's not that virulent. And that means that by the time you notice it's there, it's too late. And it's very, very difficult to see how those sort of things can be engineered. Um, in particular. That's very, very difficult to see. I do think the gain-of-function research should be extremely carefully regulated, very much so. Um, I also think that we need to recognise that the argument that it's going to help us be able to avoid things like this is quite difficult to um, really credit, especially given that we just had this <laughs> and nothing, you know, none of our, no gain of function work warned us about it. On the other hand, if we look at outbreaks of H5N1 at the moment, we can see that some of them have a mutation in the polymerase, um, the thing which copies its genetic material, that has been previously found to be adaptive for transmission among mammals by gain of function research. So, 
we have a little bit of warning from that, or you have a little bit of reason to be a bit more concerned about that. So it's quite, it's really quite difficult to, um, I think we want good, responsible virological research to go on, and we don't want it to be unduly limited. But we also want to make absolutely damn sure it's safe. Do you think, and I mean, we've talked a lot about this hypothetical next pandemic. It is, it's almost, it feels a little bit grim, but I do think it's an important conversation. So we're not surprised next time around. Um, do you think people will trust scientists more or less next time there is a pandemic? I think some people will trust them more and some people will trust them less. And I think that it's going to be one of those things which is always a thing with uh, science. Science doesn't care what you believe. Um, If somebody tells people something they want to believe, they're inclined to accept it. Um, And if the scientists are telling them something that they don't want to believe, they will have ample um they will have ample experience in not believing them from you know the last few years so i really i also think that it's very important that people come up with a better view of what science is one thing that is a was definitely a bit of a, a something of a misstep when it came to communication is some of the early communication around masks which we said were either we didn't know were effective or people shouldn't be dealing with them or that they were needed in healthcare. Now, I know for a fact that that was true because I was, I remember calling various people who I knew were stockpiling masks and saying, get them to this hospital because I know they're short. Um, but that was then represented as a kind of a flip-flop when later on it was suggested that high-quality masks could have a role in getting in the way of transmission if enough people use them. And then that, again, became something which was politicised. I think I wrote an article in The Guardian which I said something like, you know, politicising mask use is about as sensible as politicising gravity. And, um, you know, it was only after it had been published I wished and said it was actually it makes as much sense as politicising gravy, which is almost gravity. But it, but, but it is, it really is like this sort of like, it isn't a political thing. It's, it, it should not be a political thing. And that's not, by the way, to say that cloth masks are as good as N95s. It's not to say that, you know, we should be wearing masks forever under all circumstances. No, none of those things. But that's allowing it to be framed politically, you know? That's allowing this to be framed. And we shouldn't do that. Instead, what the way this should work is that elected officials set out their goals. What are they trying to achieve? Um, And those goals should be based on a common understanding of the world. You know, here's an example. You know, what happens in the summer of 2020? We know the virus is going to come back. Every every epidemiologist will tell you that. We know that it um, is going to be challenging in the winter, even if it's just on top of flu and something. So set that out and say what you're going to do. And then talk to people like me, who will say whether or not your plans are likely to work or not in our judgment. And if, you know, don't, don't pick the people who agree with you. You know, figure out where the balance of opinion is and then make a decision based on that. You know, I'm not an elected official. I shouldn't be making those choices. But the people who are should be accountable. Bill Hanaj, thank you so much for speaking to me. I really appreciate your time. That was Bill Hanash speaking to me about whether or not the COVID-19 pandemic is over. You've been listening to Crash Course with me, Michael Walker. Crash Course is produced and edited by Lewis Bassett and Patrick Herdman. Patrick Herdman does the sound design.